Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, Governor Cooper vetoes a school reopening bill. The FDA approves Johnson & Johnson's one-shot vaccine, and President Biden's stimulus package moves to the Senate. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal, communications consultant Donna King, Robert Reeves, the Democratic minority leader in the House, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to North Carolina Speaker of the House. Donna, why don't we begin with the governor's veto of the school reopening bill this week? Yes, the North Carolina Senate uh, narrowly failed to get enough votes to override Governor Cooper's veto of this bill. Uh, the bill would have required schools to open at least in hybrid, in-person and remote, as long as they were following the Strong Schools NC Toolkit. Now, that toolkit is a set of criteria uh, to prevent the spread of COVID that were outlined, developed by the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. So the bill got a majority of Senate votes to override the veto. 29 to 20, but that fell short of the two-thirds majority required to override in the Senate and then move it on to the House. Now, there was a tremendous amount of pressure from the governor's office and the North Carolina Association of Educators on members to sustain that veto. It really came down to two members. A Democrat, uh, Ben Clark of Hoke County, did not come to vote uh, to sustain his support of the bill. And that was one of the reasons that it did not pass Paul Lowe, a Democrat from Forsyth County. He changed his vote initially supporting the bill and then voting to sustain the veto. Um, now, there's a been a lot of political fallout from this. Uh, the governor and supporters of maintaining the veto say that they don't think the restrictions go far enough to protect uh, people in the classroom. But supporters of the bill and supporters of this hybrid reopening say, you know, show me the science. Where does it say that? Because the ABC Collaborative found that out of almost 100,000 people in schools that have been open in first semester, there were zero transmissions from child to adult. But the science we do have is that EOG tests are showing about 75% of third graders failed the EOG in the fall. And then in high school, about half of kids aren't going to pass uh, their end of grade testing so far this year. So the impact is going to be felt for years to come. Okay, Robert, you have the floor. Well, I think what was interesting to me, Mark, is the difference between the reporting on this issue and what was actually going on at General Assembly. And if you look at the two different bills that were presented for the school reopening, the bills almost mirror each other and they differ only in three different parts. Number one, the big issue was whether or not everybody needed to go into a plan A type situation. I think the governor was against that. The other, number two was what do we do if we get into another breakout crisis? Does the General Assembly make the decision about whether to shut down or do we have the governor make that decision? And number three, whether or not local schools have to have that idea. And I really think that this was a unfortunate example of us not being able to work together. If you look at the original SB 37, there was not one change made in that bill from the time that it started to the time that it was uh, sent to Governor Cooper's desk. And I think that's just unrealistic when you wanna pass any kind of legislation, but both sides truly wanted to get schools open. Both sides feel like that schools needed to have kids back in them. I think the big issue was whether or not 
we're going to do something about putting everybody back into plan A, which is easier in smaller districts, but harder in large districts. Mitch, where's the public on this issue? Any recent polls, my friend? Yeah, the polling has showed that uh, people really want to get the kids back into schools. There have been several polls that have showed that uh, overwhelmingly parents and voters are in favor of that. To me, an interesting piece of this debate is the fact that while you've had that political fight between legislative leaders, the Republicans in the General Assembly, and Governor Cooper, we've also had some action that's actually been opening the schools. Uh, Mandy Cohen and the Department of Health and Human Services putting out new uh, information that says it's safer and safer to open the schools. The State Board of Education voting to tell the school districts open the schools. So while there's a fight involving the legislature and the governor, nothing new, there actually is some movement to get these schools open again. Nelson, put this in context and wrap it up in about 40 seconds, please. Uh, yes, Mark. Uh, as Donna was talking about, you know, majority of the third graders who took the beginning of grade reading scores uh, scored at the lowest third. Uh, and also, when you look at student failure rates, those are up in counties two to four times higher than the course failure rates in 2019. Uh, for some additional context, just look at the European countries. They reopened their schools last spring. They kept them open during this winter, spiking cases. Okay. So certainly closing the schools, um, uh, you know, the, these students may never recover some of the learning they've lost over the last year. We'll continue to follow that. I want to move to some good news, and that's the vaccination front, Robert. Yes, and what's some great news is that Johnson & Johnson finally got in uh, FDA approval. And Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is a one-shot vaccine, and you've heard the different results about how the effectiveness rate looks on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But the great news is against the present strand of the virus, Johnson & Johnson rates just as highly as Pfizer and Moderna. Their testing also included the new variants, which, of course, reduced their effectiveness rate. Everybody's excited about it. And what was even more exciting is that what President Biden did was bring up the Defense Production Act, which allowed Merck, who is one of the biggest rivals of Johnson Johnson, to actually team up with Johnson & Johnson for production. So what that does in terms of vaccinations is it gets us to a point where instead of waiting until July, which is where we expect it to be, with getting adults vaccinated or at least having the vaccine out there for adults, we now are looking at a May date where we'll have enough vaccine produced for every adult that wants to take the vaccine. And so it's a very exciting time. It's good to see us getting back to where we need to be. And once you can get all of these adults in a position to get vaccinated, then, of course, that means we'll be able to move forward as a country and trying to get things reopened and get back to regular life. Now, another point of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is instead of needing the cold storage that you need for Pfizer and Moderna, okay. the other advantage that it has is it takes uh, three months in a regular refrigerated area. Okay, Nelson, I see that John Hopkins thinks we may have herd immunity by the spring. Uh, we should, and bringing on Merck as a... Um uh, Mark, uh, as a manufacturing partner with J&J, &J, what the United States is going to be able to do by May or June is to engage in some vaccine diplomacy. So our first focus will obviously be on the 170 million people in Canada and Mexico. And then we can go around the world helping friends like Australia, Japan, South Korea. Uh, Biden could even use this politically uh, to help vaccinate the Philippines and countries like Taiwan. Um, the European Union, for example, they are having tremendous problems with their vaccination program. So we could pick and choose countries uh, to help there. Uh, it's, of course, is what you saw. The UK uh, with Brexit has done an excellent job 
uh, with vaccination. But the United States can use this for the balance of the um, of the year to uh, engage in some soft power across the world. Mitch, states are opening up. I see Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, and the Democratic governor, Connecticut, is going to open up uh, their state by March uh, 19th, I see. Yeah, it's a positive development, and it's good to see that this is happening in many states. You mentioned that it's not just in red states, where in months past, when Republican governors had talked about opening things up, they faced a lot of criticism about being a wild west and not being concerned enough about the COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone realizes that COVID-19 is a major problem, but with the vaccine coming on board, with people understanding the, uh, the proper benefits of social distancing, and most people seeing at least some need for a mask, a mask wearing, that uh, we are seeing people getting back to, to a, a more normal, if not the old normal state. Donna, close this out in about 30 seconds, please. Final well, thoughts? I think with these vaccines available, the next challenge will be getting people to take them. Uh, the poll numbers are moving in the direction that more people are willing to. This is about 60% of people say they will take the vaccine when it's available to them. That's up from about 40% back in September. Um, I think there's a full-on campaign at the state and federal level to uh, really encourage people to understand about its efficacy and its safety. And the more people that do it, more posts on social media, the more likely it is to be accepted. Okay, I want to move on. Mitch, it looks like uh, Biden's COVID-19 relief package is sailing, th th sailed through Congress and it's moved to the Senate. Looks like it's going to be passed. Yeah, it certainly does. We're talking about this $1.9 trillion package. The U.S. House of Representatives approved it early Saturday. Very close vote. It was 219 to 212. Two Democrats voting along with all of the Republicans against it. So I'm sure some wags will say there was bipartisan opposition. It really was a vote along party lines. The process that's being used here is something called budget reconciliation, uh, which means that there are some limitations on what could be in there. The reason they're using that process is so it could pass through the Senate on a simple majority rather than having to get the 60 votes you would normally need to avoid a filibuster. One of the issues, though, with using budget reconciliation is that some items aren't in the Senate version of the package. The main one being a $15 government mandated minimum wage. That had to be pulled out of it. But there are still some major elements that were in the House plan. $1,400 stimulus checks for many people making up to $75,000 for individuals, $150,000 for couples. We're also talking about some money in there, $20 billion or so for COVID vaccines, the $400 a week supplement for unemployment insurance, and one of the most controversial pieces, especially in states that have good budget situations like North Carolina, that is $350 billion for state and local governments, which some critics call a bailout for the state governments that have spent so poorly. Okay, Donna, what's your take on this bill? It looks to me like only 10% really goes to COVID relief. Yes, so yeah, only about 10%, even less than 10% actually goes to actual COVID relief. And one of the things that's notable about this bill versus, versus prior stimulus bills is that it's being supported strictly along partisan lines. Republicans in general uh, are not, not supporting it. And we're also seeing that the previous bills were, they, they debated the details, but for the most part, both parties 
uh, supported prior stimulus bills. Uh, so we're seeing more and more of a party line on this particular one. But do we even need it? That's the big question. Consumer spending was up about two and a half percent in right. January. So we are seeing a recover recovery without a lot of government intervention, which is what a lot of economists say. That's much healthier. What we really need to be doing is helping those small businesses get back on their feet. That's a good question, Nelson. There's a trillion dollars that hasn't been spent. The economy it seems to be on a rebound. Do we really need this package, you think? Well, it's stimulus that's probably really not going to stimulate. And what we're really doing is we're increasing the national debt. You know, the, the CBO uh, estimates that the, on the current trajectory, our national debt will be increased by 200% over annual gross domestic product by mid-century. And to put this in perspective, if we had maintained the balanced budget that we had at the end of the 1990s, our economy, economy would be $15 trillion, some 70% larger than it is today. And we would have the funds to pay for things like the baby boomer, baby boomer retirement, uh, national infrastructure needs, healthcare, and a number of other programs. So we're spending funds from the future. Robert, you, what would this do or how would it help North Carolina, you think? Well, I think that if you look at what happened to us last year, and, and I think this is where I would see as far as stimulus, the money that we were able to get last year is what actually helped to put us in a better economic position this year, according to the report from the uh, budget office. And so getting this money in in whatever shape that we can allows us to still use monies that we've been able to maintain and put them into different areas that we need to spend money on the whole time instead of having to now take monies that we already have and try to put them in an emergency area. So any money that we can get in helps us get through this because we have taken a real big hit on small businesses, jobs, things of that sort. We've got to do something to get money back in people's pockets. Okay, my view is just open up the economy. Things will start rolling. Mitch, what's the most underreported story of the week? Well, uh, one of the things that uh, people should really be paying attention to is Second Amendment fans should be happy about some of the action that's going along in the, the General Assembly at this point. A couple of major pieces of legislation have been filed within the past week. One of them, House Bill 197, would make North Carolina the latest among a growing number of states to permit constitutional carry, which means that if you are, can legally own a gun, then you can legally own it and conceal it and not have to have a permit from the state. There are 18 states that have done that already. A couple of others are already looking at it. Uh, Indiana, Texas might be uh, looking at this as well. North Carolina could be considering this as well. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. There's another bill, House Bill 200, that would have a lifetime concealed carry permit. That would be interesting as well. Save people some money for a $75 renewal fee. Donna, underreported, please. So this time I'm going to say Hong Kong, going, going overseas a bit. Hong Kong arrested 47 pro-democracy activists uh, in the last week, and this is the latest in a long string of crackdowns from, from the government there. Uh, among the arrests they were made for uh, was trying to hold what they called an unofficial primary. This is a pro-democracy group that's trying to get their voice heard in the government there, and they're getting arrested, and I think it's something that we should really be paying attention to, because sooner or later the United States will likely get involved. Robert, underreported, please. Well, I think we had some really good news in the General Assembly this week. It was House Bill 76, and that was a bill that had been championed by Julia Howard, which she's been working on, that is really timely right now. And what it does is it jumps on predatory lending in the debt reconciliation space, which is something we don't ever think about. We obviously know about regular predatory lending, but in the debt reconciliation space, we have people that are being taken advantage of. And considering the fact that we're coming out of this pandemic, 
more people are more in debt, more people are more in need of money. This is some really timely legislation. She did a great job of doing a lot to get stakeholders involved and ultimately was able to pass the bill without one amendment, which is pretty amazing in the General Assembly. So that was good news this week. Nelson. Uh, Biden's options with Iran, your European leaders offered to revisit the JCPOA nuclear agreement. Uh, Biden accepted the offer. Iran rejected the talks uh, because they really have no leverage. So President Biden has some options. Uh, he could lift some sanctions, which would anger some regional allies. He could also put more pressure on with some limited military actions like the Syrian air airstrikes. Uh, but unlike past presidents, Biden also has the option to simply wait and do nothing because today, the United States only imports less than 5% of its crude oil from the Persian Gulf, while countries like China are under real pressure. They import 45% of their crude oil from the Gulf. Nelson, I want to come right back to you talk about election reform to pass the House this week. It was sweeping. Uh, it was. Uh, this week, the House approved H.R. 1, the the uh, For the People Act, which may be more for the Lawyers Act when if it were ever to pass, uh, this bill would be the most significant election change uh, in a generation. It would essentially nationalize the elections. So, for example, mail-in ballots would be mandatory with no signatures or no witnesses. You would have up to 10 days to get your ballot in after the election. You could actually print your own ballot, uh, which is an interesting option to have. Uh, paid ballot harvesting would actually be legal under this bill. Voter ID would be eliminated. Uh, redistrict authority would be taken away from the states and candidates would receive public funding. Uh, and there's even a financial disclosure provision uh, that is so egregious that the ACLU has called it unconstitutional. So this bill would really be a significant shift of power from the states to the federal government. And unless uh, the Senate overrides the uh, filibuster requirement, it's doubtful it would pass in the Senate. I'm not sure Schumer has the votes, but I actually see that there's same-day registration Robert and 16-year-olds will be allowed to vote. And I don't think that this is something that's going to pass. It's not dissimilar from the bill that was passed a couple of years ago in the House. And I think it's more of a statement about the fact that we've got to address something about our campaigns. And right now, the two most significant points I would look at from there are independent redistricting, recommending that for states, and also recommending some campaign finance reform. And I think those are two areas that everybody on both sides of the aisle can agree that we've got to get some look at. Donna, your take on this bill? Um, I, I do think I agree that I think that it is, uh, it is a statement uh, more than real policy that they, uh, would, although I'm sure that they would like to see it implemented, it's going to be a hard, it would be a hard push to do so. The majority of Americans support the idea of voter ID uh, and the idea of, uh, sh of shifting all that power to just a few hands rather than 50 states is alarming to a lot. And, the, and in the ACLU called this dangerous. Mitch, is this a federal takeover of our election process? Oh, it certainly would be. And I think uh, one of the things that people who are uh, looking at this bill and trying to decide whether they think it's a good idea or not should uh, consider is if you looked at the 2020 election and thought it was bad, just think what would have happened if the federal government had complete control over it. I think uh, people would shake their heads and say, no, it's better that the states uh, take control of this process. Some states will do it really well, other states won't. But if the federal government were in charge of the whole thing, you could be certain that the process would be corrupt. Will we be seeing a lot of lawsuits, you think, Mitch? 
Oh, certainly. If if we see this bill passed, there would be lawsuits. Even without this bill passing, there are going to be all kinds of election-related lawsuits because the types of rules that are being put in place in states across the country now are different than the ones that were put in place for COVID, and people who liked the rules that were in place for COVID-19 will want to see the same rules in place in perpetuity. Nelson, if this did pass in 2022, how would this really impact the swing states, you think? Well, certainly uh, you could argue or the argument is made that we're going to have more people voting. I do think, as Mitch has said, you would have additional lawsuits over ballots and what is actually a lawful and an unlawful ballot. Uh, most of the act would probably be tied up for years on constitutional grounds, uh, but the Democrats should be careful what they ask for. If they actually get a broken up multi-party system like they have in Europe, they could find out that the parts of their coalition would not necessarily always coalesce and the Republican coalition, although smaller, is actually tighter knit. Robert, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, my friend. Again, I think what it really comes down to is this is more of a statement and it's more of a discussion about what should we do at the state level about a lot of things that we have going on with elections. And, and I think that a, a lot of us have different views about what the election process has looked like. But I think one thing we all agree on is that the more people that vote, the better off we are. The more people obviously that are eligible to vote, have an opportunity to vote, the better off we are. And that's something we've got to watch out for. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My who's up is Senator Kirk Devier, a Democrat from Cumberland County. He was the one senator who initially voted on that school reopening bill who stuck by his vote when it came up for the veto override. My who's down, the State Department of Transportation. There's a new report from Treasurer Dale Falwell that suggests that there's a, a money problem there and we could run out of the money for borrowing for transportation projects within a few years, which would jeopardize that $3 billion package that was uh, put in place just a few years ago. DOT continues to have uh, finance problems, don't they? It really has for a while, and we saw that the state treasurer, uh, just within the past couple of years, had at one point called for the current, then current secretary of the Department of Transportation to lose his job because of the financial problems. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Up is uh, frustration among the White House press corps. President Biden has now gone more than 40 days without a press conference. Even CNN is saying that that he's basically invisible to the White House press corps, and they're really getting antsy and frustrated with the lack of communication from the president. Uh, down, I've got to say, North Carolina high school students and high school teachers. Uh, they want to be in, in school, in person. They're having a difficult time getting in there. And uh, actually, Republican Deanna Ballard said, well, this opens the door for more school choice. Uh, there has been about 60,000 North Carolina high school students and students in K-12 as well who have left the public school system. And I think that you're going to see more and more movement toward a school choice uh, because of this event. Robert, who's up and who's down this week? Who's up in North Carolina essential workers. They're now in line to go ahead and get their COVID vaccine. And that's talking about firefighters, police officers, and all those sorts. And so we're really happy for them and really glad that that group has now come up. Who's down? The people of Texas. They've gone through a historically bad uh, winter storm. And now there've been, the mask mandate's been lifted and they're 100% open. And so you have people down there who are concerned about what their health and well-being looks like going forward. So what do you make of these other states opening up, including Connecticut? A Democratic governor is going to open up the whole state by March 19th, Robert. 
I would say, again, they're not coming off of a historically bad winter storm, and I think okay. that there's a time and place for everything. Okay, Nelson, who's up and who's down this week? Carbon capture technology is up. Companies like ExxonMobil uh, have committed $3 billion to carbon capture technology. Uh, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, and others are also betting on this technology to help remove carbon from the air and make power plants and factories uh, more carbon neutral in the future. Who's down are German banks. Uh, with negative interest rates, banks in Germany are actually turning away large depositors, directing them to online options and banks in other countries. And it just shows that Europe has really not recovered from the global financial crisis of 2007. Mitch, what's the headline next week? I hope Representative Reeves and his colleagues on both sides of the aisle proved me wrong, but I'm going to say after unanimous support of the latest COVID-19 relief package, lawmakers and the governor returned to their partisan corners. So you think business as usual down at the General Assembly? My guess is uh, once they have united on that COVID-19 relief, that's about the last unity we're going to see. Down a headline next week. Uh, I think a lot of states across the country planning to reopen uh, or at least eliminate the mask mandate, you know, where you require a mask. You'd still wear one if you want to, but you would be not required. Uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Connecticut, a lot of states are throwing masks to the wind and getting ready to reopen. I think the American people are ready for it. If, if we can have everybody have a vaccine by uh, the end of May. Headline next week, Robert. Headline next week is President Biden signs his $1.4 trillion COVID relief package and what he would consider his first legislative win. Headline next week, Nelson. I'm with Donna. More states reopening. Okay, that's it for us. Thanks for watching. Great job, panel. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.